You're listening to Comedy Central. April 10th, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Our guest tonight, the star of Law and Order, SVU, and the producer of the new HBO documentary, I Am Evidence, Mariska Hargitay is here, everybody! <laughs> but first, but first, Michael Cohen, President Trump's personal lawyer and VIP customer at Joseph A. Bank. <laughs> Yesterday, thanks to the FBI, he had a really, really bad day. Let's start with those dramatic raids on the office and home of President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen. A referral from special counsel Robert Mueller led to these search warrants targeting Michael Cohen, and investigators found emails, financial documents, and some client communications possibly involving President Trump. We're told that Cohen is under investigation for possible bank fraud, campaign finance violations, and other potential crimes connected to the 2016 election. I'm sorry, but this is just ridiculous. Even Trump's lawyer is being investigated? Like, how corrupt is your circle if your lawyer uses his one phone call to call you? (laughs) It seems like everyone in Trump's world is corrupt. Like, I bet even when he goes to confession, he's like, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And his priest is like, yo, you should hear the shit I've been getting into. (laughs) Just the way that I tell you. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Trump doesn't know about church. Now, uh... (laughs) Now, any time the FBI raids a lawyer's office, it's a really, really big deal. But it's an even bigger deal when that lawyer is Michael Cohen. Because to President Trump, he's more than just a lawyer. My job is uh, I protect Mr. Trump. That's what it is. If there's an issue that relates to Mr. Trump that um, is of concern to him, it's of of course concern to me. And I will use my legal skills within which to protect Mr. Trump to the best of my ability. At the Trump Organization, he's done a bit of everything. Running a mixed martial arts company, securing real estate branding deals, and even taking care of transportation. You know, the famous Trump plane, there was an engine issue um, that he actually took care of and got a really good deal on. Yeah. (laughs) Just what you want in an airplane, a discount engine. (laughs) You're gonna be crashing like, ah, we're gonna die, but at a greatly reduced rate. So much savings. But yeah, basically, Michael Cohen is Trump's go-to guy for everything. So if Trump has ever done anything shady, which I know sounds ridiculous, but stick with me here, stick with me here, (laughs) this FBI raid has a good chance of finding it. Which is why yesterday, President Baby got a little cranky. So I just heard that uh, they broke into the office of one of my personal attorneys, good man, and uh, it's a disgraceful situation. It's a total witch hunt. It's a an attack on our country in a true sense. It's an attack on what we all stand for. That's right. It's an attack on what we all stand for. You know, the American ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of having a lawyer pay off your shy chick. (laughs) Now, in, in Trump world, what's happening here is a giant conspiracy, right? It's Robert Mueller trying to take Trump down for political reasons. The only issue with that argument is that the conspiracy would have to involve every single person in law enforcement. 
Explain how many hoops they had to go through to get this raid of Michael Cohen's right. offices. Robert Mueller did not make this decision. It seems he came upon um, some sort of potential criminal activity. He then hands it off effectively to Rod Rosenstein, who's the deputy attorney general, says, look, we found this. You decide what to do with it. Rod Rosenstein then makes a referral, meaning basically says to the uh, Southern District of New York, look, here's what we got. You decide what to do with this. Then the, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York makes a decision to then seek out a search warrant. A judge then signs off on it. The standard for a judge to sign off on this is high. Okay, that doesn't sound like a witch hunt to me. Because witch hunts were really simple, right? Back then it was just like, she shrank my penis, burn her at the stake. <laughs> That's pretty much all you needed, right? Like, what we're hearing here is just way too much legal procedure to be considered a witch hunt. Like, if people in Salem had this kind of due process, they would have never burned anyone. Like, no one would have died. <laughs> They'd be like, she shrank my penis! Let's burn her at the stake! All right, all right, but first you must fill out this official complaint. <laughs> okay, and then we'll burn her! No, no, wait, wait, then we have to uh, see what the witnesses in this case say, and we have to see how big your penis originally used to be. <laughs> What was that? Yeah, we need to know how big your penis actually was. Well, you, you know what? Forget it, man. I just, uh, I, uh, I actually made up the witch thing because uh, Hester wouldn't let me smash. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell the truth. Well, look, Matt, you can, you can tell that this raid has got Trump rattled because this morning, the president tweeted this. The president went to bed fuming and he woke up ranting. This morning, the president wrote this, attorney-client privilege is dead. <laughs> I'm sorry, just the way they said that he went to bed ranting and woke up fuming. It's just like, he was like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> Like poor Trump. I imagine him in bed this morning, just tears streaming down his face like, no, my attorney-client privilege is dead. <laughs> At least I've still got you white privilege. Don't ever leave me. <laughs> Don't ever leave me. <laughs> Oh, look, look, the fact is, attorney-client privilege doesn't apply when prosecutors have probable cause to believe that you and your lawyer were committing a crime together. It doesn't work. <laughs> so I think it's pretty clear that Trump is probably just shouting out legal terms that he's heard on Law & Order. Uh, tomorrow he'll be like, Objection! Double jeopardy, Your Honor! Habeas corpus! <laughs> we'll be right back. is an award-winning actor, an advocate for sexual assault survivors, and the producer of the new HBO documentary, I Am Evidence. Mariska Hargitay. Welcome to the show. Thank you, I am very happy to be here. This is so much fun having you because I mean, like Law and Order, I've watched my whole life and I watched your show in South Africa, it's big. Mm. And I, I always wonder like, when you've played a character like Olivia Benson for as long as you have, do you sometimes feel like you like know the law? Like do you ever feel like you are in law enforcement sometimes? No, no. I, absolutely, I feel like I do. And I'm also somebody that jumps in and gets confused about what my real job is. <laughs> There have been times in my life where I've seen something on the street and I jump in like, hey, 
Put that down. Get in here. Come <laughs> here. And I've done it so many times. I'm like, Mershka, you need to calm down. Yeah, but I've, seriously. I feel like you play your character so convincingly that if you did that to me in real life, I'd be like, yeah, it's law and order. Ah! I'd be like, it's law and order. <laughs> no, it's been fun. You know, this, this, when you do something right. for 19 years, I started the show when I was four. And <laughs> when you do, no, but when you do something, why is he laughing? That feels weird. I'm going to be 23. Anyway, um, I, I, um, when you do something for this long, you know, your body sort of reacts to right, it. Right, so right, right. So when I get, when there's crisis, I go into crisis mode. I, I like that. I like that a lot. I go into I, lieutenant mode. Go into lieutenant mode. I'm not in that mode right now. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the, the show is, is an interesting one because, you know, Law & Order has so many different spin, spin-offs, but Special Victims Unit is one that connected with so many people in a yeah. visceral way. Mm. Because we were, we were used to glamorous crimes. You know, it was always all the murder. It was the this. It was the swindling. It was the... But Special Victims Unit tackled something that, like, a lot of people have experienced, unfortunately. You know, the Me Too movement has, has exposed how pervasive sexual assault and harassment have been. And that's, that's what your show has been covering, covering for so long. Mm-hmm. You went through an interesting experience where people who were victims and, and survivors of sexual assault or harassment reached out to your character. Like, they wrote you fan mail and asked they you did. for help. Like, they actually went, I need your help. Did people not know that your character wasn't real or, or, or was it something else? You know, I think that for so long, um, survivors have been living in a culture of, um, of shame and isolation. Uh, when I started the show, I started... I'd, come off ER. And right. so when you're, you know, getting normal fan mail, you get, hi, I love your show. Can I get an autographed photo? And <clears throat> all of a sudden, when I started SVU, after the show had been airing for a while, I started getting a very different kind of fan letter um, with victims actually disclosing their stories of abuse, and many for the first time. And in those letters, there always was the same theme, again, of shame, stigma, and isolation. Right. Isolation. And them saying, I've never told anyone before and not feeling safe to tell anyone or feeling scared that it wouldn't, they wouldn't be believed or it wouldn't be received right. So right. I think that they went to this f- fictionalized character that maybe was the first person that showed empathy and compassion. And they knew that Olivia was always for the victim first and felt safe there. And hopefully now that is indeed changing. Right, and that's a powerful connection for people to have with a character and with a, with, with a show. And it's something that I think many people would find overwhelming. I don't know if I'd be able to handle that. I don't know how I would handle it. But you, <clears throat> you took it and turned it into something really positive. You started your foundation, Joyful Heart. What is Joyful Heart all about? Thank you. Well, I, you know, when I started getting these letters, as you can imagine, I was um, shocked and wanted to respond and was so, uh, it, it was very painful uh-huh. receiving these letters and I, I didn't know how to respond, so I tried to, to educate myself and uh, I was so enraged when I learned about the statistics of sexual assault that, that one in three women and one in six men will be abused in their lifetime. I mean, this, what, these were crazy statistics, and I thought if, if those were the statistics, uh, one in four women will be assaulted by her 18th birthday. H- how is it that everybody wasn't talking about this? This right. was an epidemic. So that's when I started educating myself, and when I did um, my research for the role of, of playing Olivia, 
besides hanging out <clears throat> in police, you know, precincts and with cops and doing ride-alongs, I also went through a 40-hour training to become a rape crisis advocate, which taught me wow. how to deal with survivors because I knew I wanted to play this character um, in, in a different way with all of myself and all of my humanity and empathy and 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 femininity and not in, you know, a, a female in a man's world and not in a, in a sort of male way, right. um, you know, playing this hard ass, you know, badass detective who, as we all have different sides of us, also has compassion, empathy yes. and, and humanity, as I said. So um, that's when I sort of put a structure to, to my anger and started the Joyful Heart Foundation to help victims reclaim, you know, their reclaim their lives or claim possibility and joy. And then in 2009, I learned about the rape kit backlog. Right. In 2009, I learned about, uh, there was a study done by Human Rights Watch that exposed this <laughs> unbelievable travesty in our nation that when a woman was brave enough and cr- courageous enough to come forward after being assaulted and would go through a four to six hour, often completely invasive and often re-traumatizing examination. Mm -hmm. And they would do, you know, a sexual assault evidence, you know, collection kit and poke them and prod them. And, you know, it's a humiliating, painful process. And then we found out that these kits were sitting on shelves in police storage facilities. And you would assume that in America, in this country, obviously if the evidence collection kit was, was, was taken, it would be processed. Right. And we found that, that that wasn't the case. And I found out the first case was, uh, um, the first time I found out about it was the study done in, in, in California, in Los Angeles, that there were 12,000, I think, 669 kits so the following year, I went to testify before Congress, and that's when I met this amazing badass of a woman named Kim Worthy, who was the Wayne County prosecutor, right. who was also testifying. And when we met, it was, we were done. <laughs> you know, it was a little bit of a match right. made in heaven. And, and you, you've been on a journey ever since. And this documentary, I think, is in many ways a culmination of that journey, because this story is illuminating in so many different ways. We learn about these rape kits that are taken. Uh, We learn about the experiences of these women who have survived these horrific incidents. And then we learn that there are just backlogs. There are kits that are sitting on shelves and rapists are walking free in the streets. Some people may say, okay, that's bad, but there's there's a story in particular where one woman rape was tied to another woman's yeah. rape 13 years later. Is, is this a story that you come across often? Well, you know, the, the rape kit backlog, which, of course, after we found that there were, you know, this was the same, the same story in every city. Right. Right? And there are estimated hundreds of thousands of, of rape kits sitting in police storage facility, and there are so many reasons to test these kids, but not testing them clearly sends a message to survivors saying, you don't matter, and right. your kit doesn't matter, and your case doesn't matter, and it certainly tells perpetrators, well, doesn't matter, continue. Right. What we learned is that by putting the DNA in the, in the CODIS, which is the national database, 
we kept finding hits and that there were so many serial rapists. Kim found in Detroit, I think out of 11,000 kits, there were 800, 879 serial rapists. So in the movie, which was very you know, difficult to put together, this imagine. was my first documentary, and we interviewed 14 women, right. all with the most who were so extraordinarily brave, but with these compelling stories. And I'll tell you, I could have made a documentary on each one of these women right. their, with their stories. But, you know, a documentary, how do you tell the story? How do you weave it together? And then we found that one of, one of the rapists was indeed a, um, a truck driver who uh, had, hadn't been apprehended. Right. And one of the women was waiting uh, 11 years, 14 years, for the precinct to call her back. They never did. And in the meantime, he was busy assaulting other women. It's, so, it's, yeah, it's a story that, that is enraging. It's, it's enraging. It's, it's frustrating. Um, uh, and at the same time, uplifting because of what we see in the documentary. Mm. We see the work that your organization is doing. We see the work that these women are doing fighting this process. What can be done, though? Some people go, it's a backlog. The police department cannot do anything. But New York well, City has can. done something. What can be and done? And I, I wanted to make this movie because it's so hard-hitting. Hard and, and again, when I found out about it in 2009, you know, my head almost exploded. I, I just remember going, this, can't, this cannot be. Right. It, it can't be. This is America. It can't be. And I remember doing a satellite media tour the following year, and, and none of the journalists, nobody knew. They'd go, wait, what? They would stop me and say, you're telling me that the woman goes through this examination and they're what? not testing the kids? And so <clears throat> this is an incredibly, you know, how do you measure uh, sexual assault in this country? How do you measure how women are being treated? And that's what I thought. This is a perfect sort of microcosm right. of how we treat women, how we treat survivors. And uh, it's sort of like, it sort of holds a mirror up to the country and says, right. this is what we're doing, so let's change it. The good news is it's fixable. The good news is that Joyful Heart, the, my foundation that I, that I founded in 2004, has, been, has made the rape kit uh, backlog, our number one advocacy priority. And so we have made these six pillars of legislation that we're trying to push through. And, the, and, and we are changing legislation in every state. Um, New York doesn't have a backlog, thank God. And um, certain, certain states by states and cities by cities are cleaning up their backlog. Right. So you can go to endthebacklog.org and find out what you can do, write to your legislators, write to your congressmen, and we can change it. We just have to be persistent and never give up. I think that sounds amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am Evidence debuts Monday, April 16th at 8 p.m. on HBO. And for more information about how you can help, visit endthebacklog.org. Mariska Hagate, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.